Welcome, friends. I hope you're doing well. It's the ninth day of July, and I'm excited knowing that we will be experiencing the many benefits that come with the daily intake of God's Word, especially as we read it aloud in its given context. This is day 190 on our tour, and by God's grace, we've been able to read with you every day of the year so far. We are currently reading through the 13th Old Testament book, the book of First Chronicles, and we are in the book of Acts in the New Testament. Although the books of First and Second Chronicles follow First and Second Kings in our Bible, in the Hebrew Bible, the books of Chronicles come at the end of the third section of the Tanakh, the section known as the Kethuvim, the writings. And it is believed that the books of the Chronicles were written after the decree to return from Babylon to Jerusalem. The last books in this third section of the Hebrew Bible deal with the history of the children of Israel in their Babylonian captivity, Daniel, then Ezra, Nehemiah, and then the books of Chronicles. The chronicler will be reminding us that the Davidic dynasty and the Jerusalem temple form the institutional foundation for Israel's existence. Both of these, the Davidic dynasty and the temple, anticipate the person and work of the Messiah to come, the son of David, and the spiritual temple he will build. Remember, at the time of writing, after the Babylonian captivity, there is no Davidic king on the throne, nor will there be, until the son of David, Jesus Christ, claims that title, King of the Jews. The books of First and Second Chronicles were written to assure the Jews returning to their homeland after the Babylonian captivity that despite their failures and present difficulties, they should not despair. God will be true to his covenant promises. God preserved their identity even though they had been taken captive by the Babylonians for 70 years and they were still now under judgment as prescribed by the Mosaic law. They were restored to their homeland but were a province subject to the Persian Empire. But God will fulfill his promise and one day bring the expected one to the throne. Today we will be reading the genealogies in chapters 7 and 8, and I will be reading from the English Standard Version. The Descendants of Issachar 1 Chronicles chapter 7 The sons of Issachar, Tola, Pua, Jashub, and Shimron, 4. The sons of Tola, Uzi, Raphiah, Jeriel, Jamai, Ibsam, and Shemuel, heads of their fathers' houses, namely of Tola, mighty warriors of their generations, their number in the days of David being 22,600. The son of Uzi, Israhiah, and the sons of Israhiah, Michael, Obadiah, Joel, and Ishiah. All five of them were chief men. And along with them, by their generations, according to their fathers' houses, were units of the army for war, 36,000, for they had many wives and sons. Their kinsmen belonging to all the clans of Issachar were in all 87,000 mighty warriors enrolled by genealogy. Descendants of Benjamin The sons of Benjamin, Bela, Becher, and Jediael, three. The sons of Bela, Esbon, Uzi, Uziel, Jeremoth, and Iri, five. Heads of fathers' houses, mighty warriors, and their enrollment by genealogies was 22,034. The sons of Becher, Zemira, Joash, Eliezer, Elioine, Omri, Jeremoth, 
Abijah, Anathoth, and Alameth. All these were the sons of Becher, and their enrollment by genealogies according to their generations as heads of their fathers' houses, mighty warriors, was twenty thousand two hundred. The son of Jediael, Bilhan, and the sons of Bilhan, Jeush, Benjamin, Ehud, Chenana, Zethan, Tarshish, and Abishahar. All these were the sons of Jediael, according to the heads of their fathers' houses, mighty warriors, 17,200 able to go to war. And Shupim and Hupim were the sons of Ir, Hushim the son of Aher. Descendants of Naphtali, the sons of Naphtali, Jaziel, Guni, Jezer, and Shalom, the descendants of Bilhah. Descendants of Manasseh, the sons of Manasseh, Azriel, whom his Aramean concubine bore, she bore Machir, the father of Gilead. And Machir took a wife for Hupim and for Shuppim. The name of his sister was Maka, and the name of the second was Zalafadad, and Zalafadad had daughters. And Maka, the wife of Machir, bore a son, and she called his name Peresh. And the name of his brother was Sheresh, and his sons were Ulam and Rakem. The son of Ulam, Bedan. These were the sons of Gilead, the son of Machir, son of Manasseh. And his sister, Hamalekith, bore Ishhad, Abiezer, and Mala. The sons of Shemida were Ahayan, Shechem, Lichi, and Anayim, the descendants of Ephraim. The sons of Ephraim, Shethelah, and Bered his son, Tahath his son, Eliada his son, Tahath his son, Zabad his son, Shuthalah his son, and Ezer and Eliad, whom the men of Gath who were born in the land killed, because they came down to raid their livestock. And Ephraim their father mourned many days, and his brothers came to comfort him. And Ephraim went in to his wife, and she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Bariah, because disaster had befallen his house. His daughter was Sheerah, who built both lower and upper Beth Haron, and Uzen Sheerah. Shepha was his son, Shepheth his son, Tela his son, Tahan his son, Ladan his son, Amihud his son, Elishama his son, Nun his son, Joshua his son. Their possessions and settlements were Bethel and its towns, and to the east Aaron and to the west Gezer, and its towns, Shechem, and its towns, and Aya, and its towns, also in possession of the Manassites, Bethshean, and its towns, Taanak, and its towns, Megiddo, and its towns, Dor, and its towns. In these lived the sons of Joseph, the son of Israel. Descendants of Asher. The sons of Asher, Imna, Ishva, Ishvi, Bariah, and their sister, Sarah. The sons of Bariah, Heber, and Malchiel, who fathered Birzaiath. Heber fathered Japhlet, Shomer, Hotham, and their sister Shua. The sons of Japhlet, Pasach, Bimhal, Ashvath. These are the sons of Japhlet. The sons of Shemer, his brother, Rogah, Jehubah, and Aram. The sons of Helam, his brother, Zophah, Imnah, Shelesh, and Amal. The sons of Zophah, Sua, Hanafer, Shual, Veri, Imrah, Bezer, Had, Shama, 
Shilshah, Ithron, and Beera, the sons of Jether, Jephunneh, Pispah, and Ara, the sons of Ula, Ara, Haniel, and Riziah. All of these were men of Asher, heads of fathers' houses, approved mighty warriors, chiefs of the princes. Their number enrolled by genealogies for service in war was 26,000 men. A Genealogy of Saul, Chapter 8 Benjamin fathered Bela his firstborn, Ashbel the second, Ahara the third, Nohah the fourth, and Rapha the fifth. And Bela had sons, Adar, Gera, Abihud, Abishua, Naaman, Ahoah, Gera, Shephuphan, and Huram. These are the sons of Ehud. They were heads of fathers' houses of the inhabitants of Geba, and they were carried into exile to Manahath. Naaman, Ahijah, and Gera, that is, Heglam, who fathered Uzzah and Ahihud. And Shaharaim fathered sons in the country of Moab, after he had sent away Hushim and Bara his wives. He fathered sons by Hodesh, his wife, Jobab, Zibia, Mesha, Malcom, Jeuz, Sakia, and Mirmah. These were his sons, heads of fathers' houses. He also fathered sons by Hushim, Abitub, and Elpaal, the sons of Elpaal, Eber, Misham, and Shemed, who built Ono and Lod with its towns, and Bariah and Shemah. They were heads of fathers' houses of the inhabitants of Ajalon, who caused the inhabitants of Gath to flee, and Ahio, Shashak, and Jeremoth. Zebadiah, Arad, Eder, Michael, Ishpah, and Johah were sons of Bariah. Zebadiah, Meshulam, Hiski, Heber, Ishmerai, Isliah, and Jobab were the sons of Elpaal. Jachim, Zikri, Zabdi, Elienai, Zelethai, Eliel, Adiah, Beriah, and Shimrath were the sons of Shimai, Ishpan, Eber, Eliel, Abdon, Zikri, Hanan, Hananiah, Elam, Antothijah, Ifdaiah, and Penuel were sons of Shashak, Shamsherai, Shehariah, Athaliah, Jaarishiah, Elijah, and Zikri were the sons of Jeroham. These were the heads of the fathers' houses, according to their generations, chief men. These lived in Jerusalem. Jael, the father of Gibeon, lived in Gibeon, and the name of his wife was Machah. His firstborn son, Abdon, then Zur, Kish, Baal, Nadab, Gedor, Ahio, Zecher, and Mikloth. He fathered Shemaiah. Now these also lived opposite their kinsmen in Jerusalem with their kinsmen. Ner was the father of Kish, Kish of Saul, Saul of Jonathan, Malkishua, Abinadab, and Eshbaal. And the son of Jonathan was Meribbaal, and Meribbaal was the father of Micah. The sons of Micah, Pithon, Melech, Tereah, and Ahaz. Ahaz fathered Jehoada, and Jehoada fathered Alameth, Asmaveth, and Zimri. Zimri fathered Moza. Moza fathered Benaiah. Rapha was his son. Eliasa his son. Azel his son. Azel had six sons, and these are their names. 
Azrikam, Bosharu, Ishmael, Shearaiah, Obadiah, and Hanan. All these were the sons of Azel, the sons of Eshek his brother, Ulam his firstborn, Jeush the second, and Eliphelet the third. The sons of Ulam were men who were mighty warriors, bowmen, having many sons and grandsons, a hundred and fifty. All these were Benjaminites. And this concludes today's portion from the book of First Chronicles. And aren't you glad you didn't have to pronounce all those names? Let's take a moment to point out some highlights. What we notice in the genealogies is that this chronicler is listing the tribal descendants that focus on the purpose of God in the Davidic covenant. The writer recognizes that King David must be a foreshadowing of a greater king that is to come in order to fulfill God's promise. The reign of kings has come to an end. The promise of the Davidic covenant is not to be fulfilled in anyone other than the sinless Emmanuel, Jesus of Nazareth. The Apostle Paul explains that the purpose of God in the Davidic covenant points to Jesus when he preaches in Acts chapter 13, verses 22 to 23. He raised up David to be their king, concerning whom he also testified and said, I have found David the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. From the descendants of this man, according to promise, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus. During the time of David, the tribes of Issachar, Benjamin, and Asher were of assistance, ready to serve in the interests of the king, and therefore a fuller treatment is given to them in the genealogies recorded in First Chronicles. Both the record of genealogies and the number of fighting men are given in respect to those three tribes. The sons of Issachar were listed as fighting men ready for battle. Later in the book, we will see that they are recognized for their understanding the times. In 1 Chronicles chapter 12, verse 32, Of the sons of Issachar, men who understood the times, with knowledge of what Israel should do. Their chiefs were two hundred, and all their kinsmen were at their command. David served the purposes of God in his generation. In Acts chapter 13, verse 36, as did the sons of Issachar. Can it be said of us also? The sons of Benjamin are noted for their readiness to serve their king in times of war. The sons of Asher are noted as, quote, choice men, brave warriors, and outstanding leaders, end quote. In contrast, only one sentence is given to the tribe of Naphtali. We have the record of Shaharaim practicing polygamy, divorcing two of his wives before marrying Hodesh. God hates divorce, and he does not condone polygamy. The Bible records the egregious sins of humankind with stark realism. Because he records them does not mean he condones them. Against the background of human depravity, we have a portrait of divine mercy. The genealogy of King Saul begins in 1 Chronicles chapter 8, verse 1, starting with Saul's ancestor, Benjamin. Saul's birth is recorded in 1 Chronicles chapter 8, verse 33. This genealogy is repeated in chapter 9, verses 35 through 44, because the chronicler is going to start the narrative with an account of Saul's reign in chapter 10. His dynasty ends with his death, but the family line continues for many generations, some of whom are recorded here. One of the many sons and grandsons of Saul who is not listed in Chronicles is Mordecai, who will feature in the history of God's people during their time of subjection to the Persians in the book of Esther. In Esther chapter 2, verses 5 and 6, we read, Now there was at the citadel in Susa a Jew whose name was Mordecai, 
the son of Jair, the son of Shemai, the son of Kish, a Benjaminite, who had been taken into exile from Jerusalem with the captives who had been exiled with Jeconiah king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar the king of Babylon had exiled. Let's move on to our next stop on our Bible tour, which is the book of Acts chapter 27, verses 1 through 20. And I want to give you a warning that we will be traveling by sea. Acts chapter 27. Paul sails for Rome. And when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And embarking in a ship of Adramitium, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. The next day we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. And putting out to sea from there, we sailed under the lee of Cyprus, because the winds were against us. And when we had sailed across the open sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra in Lucia. There the centurion found a ship of Alexandria, sailing for Italy, and put us on board. We sailed slowly for a number of days, and arrived with difficulty off Nidus, and as the wind did not allow us to go farther, we sailed under the lee of Crete, off Salmone. Coasting along it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lacia. Since much time had passed, and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over, Paul advised them, saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there, on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, facing both southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. The Storm at Sea Now when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete, close to the shore. But soon a tempestuous wind, called the Northeaster, struck down from the land. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. Running under the lee of a small island called Cauda, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then, fearing that they would run aground on the Sirtis, they lowered the gear, and thus they were driven along. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo, and on the third day they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. And this is the end of our reading of the New Testament portion from the book of Acts. Now let's take a few moments to point out some highlights. In this chapter, chapter 27, we have the best account from the ancient world of a sea voyage. The Apostle Paul is being taken from Caesarea to be tried before Caesar in Rome. The description of the sea voyage and the shipwreck is one of the best told stories of ancient history. It is the product of an eyewitness. Luke, who writes it, was there. Luke takes great interest in recording the details. He was accurate in terms of regard to the route taken, ancient navigating skills, 
even the details of the ship's physical construction and the way in which the sailors tried to cope with the storm. Luke furnishes so much accurate detail that mariners have been able to calculate the speed and the direction of the ship's drift during the storm. The calculations considering the distance between the island of Cauda and the eastern tip of Malta is 476.6 miles. They can calculate based on the ship size and the mean intensity of the gale. The calculations work out precisely as Luke records, a drift of 14 days to Malta. They can theoretically work out the route and landing place. Paul, technically a prisoner of Rome, is under the custody of a Roman centurion named Julius, who would be punished by death if any of his prisoners escaped. Yet this cohort affords Paul the privilege of having Luke and Aristarchus accompany him. This event takes place in October of 59 AD. Sailing the Mediterranean would get hazardous in September and nearly impossible in November due to stormy weather and cloud cover. Ship captains in these times were without compasses and navigated by the stars, so they were dependent on favorable weather. Because of financial prospects and the fact that the captain did not want to spend the winter in La Silla, Paul's warning to wait was rejected. Paul gave a warning in Acts chapter 27 verse 10 and said to them, Men, I perceive that the voyage will certainly be with damage and great loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. The centurion chose to heed the urgings of the pilot and the captain of the ship to set sail rather than listen to Paul's advice. Soon the ship was caught in a northeaster, a fierce storm called the Uraquillo. This chapter inspires us to trust the Lord when we go through storms. We see how God, by sovereign decree, uses secondary means to bring about His saving purposes. Paul speaks of what he knows to be God's will of decree. There will be no loss of life. Acts 27, verse 22. Yet he also warns that unless everyone stays on board and does their part, those who go overboard will die. Acts 27, verse 31. Notice that these two statements from Paul appear to be contradictory. Yet both statements are true. Paul had special knowledge of God's will of decree. God had decreed both statements. God ordains the means as well as the end. God uses the crew to run the ship into the shore of Malta. God could have delivered Paul and the crew supernaturally by rebuking the wind and the waves, but God sovereignly decrees how he will accomplish his purposes. He works with the instrumentality of storms, winds, and human beings. The same God who determined the ends also determined the means. The physical salvation of the crew depended on the actions of the centurion and the crew whom God ordained to be the means of his working out his saving purposes. Our duty as ambassadors of Christ is to proclaim the good news. We are to make known the person and work of Christ and the promise of forgiveness. We are to urge men to repent and be reconciled to God through trusting Christ as their Lord and Savior. These are the very means that God will use to save those whom he effectually draws to Christ. He does not save sinners apart from the means he has chosen. In Romans chapter 10, verses 13 to 15, the Apostle Paul writes, For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. We will continue the story of Paul's adventure tomorrow 
Now let's go to our next stop on our Bible tour, the book of Psalms, Psalm 7, verses 1 through 17. In you do I take refuge. Psalm 7. O Lord my God, in you do I take refuge. Save me from all my pursuers and deliver me, lest like a lion they tear my soul apart, rending it in pieces with none to deliver. O Lord my God, if I have done this, if there is wrong in my hands, if I have repaid my friend with evil or plundered my enemy without cause, let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it, and let him trample my life to the ground and lay my glory in the dust. Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift yourself up against the fury of my enemies. Awake from me. You have appointed a judgment. Let the assembly of the peoples be gathered about you. Over it return on high. The Lord judges the peoples. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to the integrity that is in me. O let the evil of the wicked come to an end, and may you establish the righteous, you who test the minds and hearts. O righteous God, my shield is with God, who saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. Behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. He makes a pit, digging it out, and falls into the hole that he has made. His mischief returns upon his own head, and on his own skull his violence descends. I will give to the Lord the thanks due to his righteousness, and I will sing praise to the name of the Lord the Most High. Here is another prayer from the psalmist who is threatened with troubles. He asks the Lord to examine his heart to assure that he is in a right relationship with the Deliverer in whom he trusts. We see humility and boldness in this psalm, humble confession and self-examination in verses 3 through 5, bold requests in verses 6 through 9, bold confession of the truth in verses 10 through 16, humble worship and bold praise in verse 17. I will give thanks to the Lord according to His righteousness, and will sing praise to the name of the Lord Most High. And now we go to the book of Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 18, verse 22. He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. This proverb implies that a good marriage is pleasing to God. Blessed is the person who finds a good spouse. This is a sign of God's favor. It is not only pleasing to God, but beneficial to the rest of mankind, as it is designed to reflect the loving community of oneness in the Godhead. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. This is a good thing. Now let's go before the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we want to serve your purposes in our generation. Thank you for faithfully and mercifully calling us into the fellowship of your Son, who has provided the peace of our reconciliation with you. We praise you for your presence in the storms of life and how you use them to shape us, mold us, instruct us, and conform us to the image of Christ. You deal with your people in righteousness. Thank you for relationships. It is not good that man should be alone, so we thank you for our fellowship in the body of Christ, our marriages, families, and friendships, in which we can reflect something of your love and the community of oneness that you have with the Holy Spirit and your Son. We offer you our praise in Jesus' name. Amen.
Well, this concludes today's jaunt in our one-year Bible tour, and we look forward to continuing with you, God willing, tomorrow. We invite you to visit our website, newlife.org, where you can learn more about our ministries and how to support ministries like our podcast. You can also subscribe to a free daily email in which you get a written commentary with illustrations from each day's portion from the one-year Bible reading. And if you have any questions or comments or you'd like to be in touch with us, you can write us at podcast at newlife.org. So until our next excursion tomorrow, may your days be full of the peace and joy that comes from the abiding presence of the Holy Spirit. Shalom. Shalom.